We are in 1 Peter. I want to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 for us this morning. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when ye sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray. Father, what a tremendous passage and encouragement this passage is to us this morning. Once again, we come before you ever relying on the Spirit of God to teach each one of us. Father, we gather here as a number of people locally to worship you, and yet individually we have needs. Some in this room have not yet come to salvation in Christ. Some are struggling with a number of things and as believers, and uh, Father, you know each need. We thank you and praise you that you sent your Son and we pray and ask that the Spirit of God would use your word sharply in each one of our lives, prepare us for the communion that will follow, and might you get all the honor and glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've entitled the message today, just for purposes of the website and for the uh, CD that's made, The Believer's Model. The Believer's Model. Last week when we were together, we actually covered verses 18 through 20 and uh, give you a brief review because it is important to the context. And as I said, beginning in chapter 2, verse 18, it actually continues in through chapter 3, verse 7, when it gets into the wives and the husbands that are in this passage. So let me just give a brief synopsis. We noticed that the context is dealing with domestic slaves. I kind of defined a couple of things with slaves last week. But when it opens up with the word servant, it is talking about a domestic slave, one who managed the household. And by application, and I think an appropriate application, as I said last week, it's a very good passage, is application to the employer-employee relationship as well. There are all kinds of slaves in the Old Testament as there are today, but this is dealing with the one particularly that was a manager of a household, and that is the area that Peter is going into. And what was happening is people were slaves and servants, and then they came to know Christ, 
And as a believer now, they were equal even to their master in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were equal with them. They, they shared in the inheritance that comes along with that. And how were they to function? How were they to honor God living now? Were they just to get out of that relationship? What was to happen? And what we learned, and you can read those verses 18 to 20. I won't go into them other than to summarize them. How were they to do that? By submitting to their master. They were to continue, even though they were a believer, they were to continue to submit to their master. This did not change because they came into relationship with Christ. They still were living on the earth. They were now heavenly citizens living in this environment, but they were still to submit. We learned a couple of things last week, and the key in all social relationships we talked about last week is how we do conduct how we do conduct ourselves, and how are we to conduct ourselves as believers in relationships in social areas. Number one, we are to please God, we saw last week. Always seek to please Him, no matter what relationship we're in. I also stated last week that we should fulfill the delegation imposed by the relationship. Whatever the relationship is, the delegation that's imposed by that relationship still exists, and we have to function in that, such as master-slave. If you're in that relationship, it hasn't changed, and you ought to still function in that relationship honoring God. If it is a parent-child relationship, though a child be saved and the parent not be saved, you are still to function in that relationship in honoring to God and delegated to that position you ought to function that way. Teach your student, and on it goes. Thirdly, we said uh, that we, our conduct should be determined by our relationship to an individual. What is the relationship? Not by the conduct of our superior. Remember, remember that. No matter what the conduct of our superior it is, is we are to honor the Lord, and our conduct should be determined by our relationship to that position. So we may have a boss that is a very cruel boss, but that gives us no excuse to dishonor the, him by the way we behave, him or her. We are to still please the Lord and honor the position, even if their conduct is not correct. We also said last week, and we noticed in this passage, <coughs> excuse me, that we should expect to suffer as believers, if you live godly, you will suffer persecution. We should expect that. We should see, we're going to see that, okay? However, Peter was very careful to say that we should not be suffering for doing wrong or for sinning. It is no martyrdom to turn around and say, I'm suffering for Christ when you are behaving improperly on the job or as a child or as a parent or as a husband, as a wife, or whatever the relationship is. Same things with the government when we already learned in relationship to that. If we're doing wrong, we deserve what we're getting. So the way we should suffer is for doing what is right. If we are doing what is right in honoring God, even though we are being persecuted for that, or we are being treated poorly, that is honorable and pleasing in the eyes of God. So we are to seek to perform our tasks in a way, as it ends in verse 20, that we will win favor or the grace of God 
in our life. That is how we are to function. And it is very easy now, having studied some of that through, to sit back and say, that sounds great. It's wonderful, uh, but it's not practical. It's, it sounds great, but can I really do that? Can I work for somebody that is really that bad? Can I, can I function in a home that is maybe not functioning properly and <clears throat> my parents are not interested in honoring God and, and I still am to live for God? Or my spouse is not saved and uh, all of those types of relationships, even though this is dealing with the servant relationship. Is that really possible? The answer is yes. And our model is found right here in our text in verses 21 to 25. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is our model, and I will say things about that as I go on this morning. But I first of all want you to see that he starts off in verse 21 by saying, for you have been called for this purpose. He starts off, before getting into the specific model of Jesus Christ, by recalling our calling. What is it? We are called by the Lord, not just to suffer, and that's a lot of commentaries have that in there. He is basically saying that we have just been called for the purpose of suffering. I don't believe that that's really the entire context of really what he's dealing with. I believe his point, really, Peter, why just say you've been called to suffer, live with it? No, I believe what he's really been teaching, even with the servant or the slave relationship, and what he's teaching throughout the book, is we are called to hold up under. We are called to stand up. We are called to patiently endure the suffering. There's a big difference. We are called to stand up under it. If you look at verse 19, isn't that what he just said? For this finds favor, uh, if for the sake of conscience toward God... A person bears up under sorrow. That's the point, that he bears up under it when he's suffering unjustly. It's like holding up. I've used the illustration before, and, and our parking lot is a good example of it, and we've tried to treat it many times. But it's amazing when this property, and I was here when it was just sand, and, and, and then they plow it down, and they, they take a, they tore everything out, and then a, a, in comes a, a roller, and it flattens it out and puts all this pressure. And I don't know if Scott remembers, but at one particular time, uh, at one stage, the property was vibrating. There was so much pressure being put on that. And then they come in, and they put tar over it, right? All of that pressure is coming down. And out of nowhere, this little blade of grass that I can step on and kick and cut pushes right through. How is that possible? Now, I don't need a, a lesson, by the way, from all of you engineers or scientists today because you can probably explain it. But the point is this. What did it do? Under all that pressure that was coming down on it, it bore up. It stood up and won. And that's his point. He wants us really, we are called to bear up under it, to basically endure it patiently. That's verse 20. Look at verse 20 again. He says... Uh, for what credit is it if when you sin you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, what? You patiently endure it. That's his point. That's what you've been called to. You've been called to patiently endure by, as we're going to see, trusting in God. You're going to suffer. But it isn't just grind it out. It's the idea of bearing up under because we're trusting and walking with God, and that's really what he's going to get to. We are to 
do that because our calling is to follow, verse 21, our mentor, if you will. We ought to follow the steps of our mentor, and we can do it. And that is the passage. You know, this is a tremendous passage of Scripture that's blessed many, and I trust will bless you today. But I want you to look at it in the way I think Peter is trying to give it to us. What is that? He's not just giving us the example of Christ to look at. That's wonderful. It's wonderful to look at the example of Christ, and we're going to do that, and to see the picture of Jesus Christ and say, wow, that's marvelous. He did it. But the point that Peter is trying to point out to us is this. I want you to see the model of Jesus Christ because you also can do it. He wants to show us that we have a model before us, and if we learn from some principles of that, we can endure and hold up under. It is very practical to our life. So not only is this a tremendous passage of encouragement to us in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us, but he wants us to follow, and I'll explain that in just a few moments, he wants us to follow because we too can be encouraged in the difficulties that we face knowing that we can have victory. And that's the point. What good is it to have all the theology of Scripture in our head and mind and then go out into life and you say, this is great, I can give you every answer from the Bible, but I don't know how it works. Right? We want to be able to say, yes, I know what the Scripture says, and it works. And it can work. And here's how it can work. And that's part of what this passage is for. Not to just look at Jesus Christ, which we need to do, and understand that, to understand the context, but also to see, you've been called to this, folks, and you can do it. We have somebody that we can follow. The believer, for example, it's interesting how this book, I, I, when I was studying and preparing, it, it, it caused me to just dwell a little bit on this calling that it opens up with. He says, you've been called, and as I looked at it a little deeper, it's interesting the way that Peter uses it in this book. I want you to see it. It just came out this week as I was studying even further. In the past, we were called out of darkness. Go with me to chapter 2, verse 9. Peter shows us this. Watch. Chapter 2, verse 9. What, remember how encouraged we were? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. If that doesn't encourage you folks as a believer, I don't know what will. But watch. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. He uses it here. What? Out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the past. As believers, those who have trusted in Christ in the past have been called out of darkness into light. That's where we are. Look at what he says about the future in this book and our calling. Go with me to chapter 3 and verse 9. Go with me to chapter 3 and verse 9. Here, Peter, when he goes on, and we'll get between where we are in chapter 3, verse 9, when we study it together. But you'll notice in verse 9, he says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. See, that's pretty practical in our life. But giving a blessing instead. Why am I going to function that way? Why am I going to operate that way in this world? Here's the reason. For you were called, watch, for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. That's future. That's future. We're called for this purpose that we might inherit a blessing. What is that? We will inherit a future tremendous blessing when we're with the Lord. We have it now, but we will enjoy it even better later. And then he says this in chapter 5. Go with me to chapter 5 of 1 Peter. In verse 10, there's two aspects I want to 
point out here. He also says that we're called to an eternal perfect home. Chapter 5, verse 10. He says, after you have, watch this, isn't this relevant to our text? After you have suffered for a little while, I'll come back to that, the God of all grace who called you to his glory, to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Wow. He says, look, you've been called out of darkness. Look, you've been called to a tremendous blessing for the future. You've been called unto a tremendous eternal glory that will be perfected in you. In fact, P, uh, Paul puts it this way, <coughs> excuse me, in Philippians. What God has begun, he will perfect into the day of Jesus Christ. What a blessing. But you notice, now we go back to the present. That's our past. Our future is great. But what about the present? And you notice the first part of verse 10 there, after you have suffered for a little while. That's part of it. Part of it is suffering. And we don't enjoy it, we, we, it when we're going through suffering. But that is what happens now. We must suffer for a while, and we are to hold up under that. Go with me to chapter 1. That's how we started the book. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, all with the calling. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, watch, even though now, that's the present, for a little while, if necessary, and we saw that we studied that it is necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Okay? That's the present. You're going to have these trials in the present. Go to chapter 2 and verse 21 where we are. For you have been called for this purpose. What is that? We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and we're called to bear up under the trials of life and the difficulties that will come. And that's what we're called to do. And he starts with that and wants to remind us. Oftentimes people think that, look, if I become a Christian, and we present the gospel sometimes that way. You know, just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll get to heaven, and, and wouldn't anybody want to go to heaven? Who's not, gonna, who's not gonna want to take that invitation? Wouldn't you like to go to heaven? No. Right? And honestly, we, we are flippant about the gospel. We need to say to people, you know what? You are lost. You are a sinner and you will end up in hell apart from faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross and paid the penalty. That's usually not why people are saying that. Why? Because they don't want to insult people. They don't want to listen. People need to know the truth. And they need to be given the truth. And so he presents the suffering servant now to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a marvelous passage. I, I wish I had a month to preach just on this passage. You say you do. Well, I could, but let's take a look at it. We know our calling. We're going to suffer. Well, let's look at the suffering servant. By the way, I want to point it out. That's why I read Isaiah. This, to my knowledge, is, I believe when I looked it up, there's only four, at most five specific references. There's a lot of references to Isaiah, but to Isaiah 53 that specifically deal with Jesus Christ. This is the clearest in the New Testament passage that identifies the fact that Jesus Christ fulfills Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, that he is the servant. I want you to keep your finger here and take a, go back to Isaiah 53 for a moment. I want you to see this very quickly, but enough so you get the point. Keep your finger in both places. Can you do that? 
No, I can't, Pastor Dan, because I'm dealing with a calculator. I'm dealing with a, 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 a computer. I'm dealing with a, an iPhone. That's okay. It'll work. You just have to go back and forth. All right. What have you got? You'll notice verse 22 of our passage says, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. That's 1 Peter 2, right? Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. His grave was assigned with the wicked, and yet he is rich with, in his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live into righteousness, by, for by his wounds we were healed. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our grief. He himself has borne our griefs. And our sorrows he carried. Then he goes on and says, Yet we esteemed him smitten of God. Look at verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 53. Look what it says. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, divided with the, uh, the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressions. And yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Look at the words of chapter 53, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed. All of that is referring to the same thing that Peter is talking about. One more, verse 25 of, of 1 Peter 2. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It is a very clear picture. What? The servant of Isaiah chapter 53 is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. The world in the Old Testament, well, I shouldn't even say the world, but the Jews in the Old Testament were looking for God's promised one, the Messiah. How could they identify him? Well, he did perform miracles, and that was evidence, and that's why he did it. It was an authentication of who he was. But also, he fulfilled Isaiah 53. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. That is why Jesus Christ could say, I am the way. This isn't open to debate. This is not about the religions of the world. This is about God who is in control and from the beginning created the heaven and the earth and all that's in them and the God that created them wanting us to live with him and walk with him and man failed and through man's sin, according to Romans, one man's sin, sin entered into the world and you see the results of it. This morning I scanned the globe. By the time I was done from pages one through six of yesterday's globe, I was sick and tired of looking all that's wrong in the entire world. And it's all a result of man's sin. And God loved us so much that he promised, look, I have to save you. You can't do it. You can't do it through religion. You can't do it through church. You can't do it by making up a bunch of rules. I will send my son. And Jesus Christ came. He is God in the flesh. And that's what we celebrate at this time. We talk about Christmas. It's God in the flesh. And it was him who willingly, according to Philippians, and I don't want to turn there right now, but according to Philippians, even being God, he willingly submitted his will to the Father 
so that he could bear the sins. And I want you to see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. If, by the way, if you're here today and you're searching in your heart and you don't know and you even say, I don't even know if this guy that's talking, I don't even know who Pastor Dan is, I don't even know what this guy's talking about, I don't believe him, I'm not going to, you shouldn't believe me. Turn to the Word of God yourself. Turn to the Word of God and you're going to see. You have no hope for life beyond death apart from Jesus Christ. And if you're following any type of religion and hoping in that, I can tell you right now without even knowing you, you're empty because you're not sure. And if you're following your own, and I was in a conversation with someone this week, and that's what it is. They were basing the fact that they didn't believe in God. Why? What was the bottom line? How do you know that? And the bottom line that the person had to admit was this. Simply because I think it's so. And you're going to rest your whole eternity on that? God sent his son. He was the one, the Messiah of God. And what did he do? Watch. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered. What's the next two words? If you're here as a believer today, don't you ever overlook those two words. And if you're an unbeliever today, Christ has satisfied the righteousness of God that will only apply to you when you appropriate it by faith in Jesus Christ. It was for me. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Some of you could quote it. Verse 21. I'm going to go back to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors. He's talking about the Corinthian saints. He's talking about himself. He includes himself, the Apostle Paul. We're ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. As though God were making an appeal to, through us, we beg you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Many people are wondering whether God exists and they, they want to know whether God exists. They're not sure. How can I be reconciled to God? Look it. Look what it says in 21. He, that is God, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. You can't say that of yourself. Nor can I. You say, well, I'm not as bad as somebody else. I didn't commit murder. I've never committed adultery. Really? Have you ever looked at another woman or another man and lusted after them? You've committed adultery in your heart. You ever despised or hated somebody else in your thinking? You've already committed murder. Let's say it's not as bad as going out to do it. In the eyes of God, you've already sinned and violated his law. You're going to tell me you never lusted after anything? You never were covetous? You never lied? Well, a little lie. little lie? It only takes one sin to keep you out of heaven in God's presence. We are sinners. But he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Watch this. It's very important. When he says, for you, it is substitutionary. It is for you. He sinned it says, you know, no sin on our behalf. Who is that? It is the believer. It is the believer. It's the one who's exercised faith. 
in him. They're the ones that are going to get the benefit of it. That so that we might become the righteousness of God. Look at this. In him. We don't become the righteousness of God because we're good people. We come to become the righteousness of God and in a right relationship with God because of him. Because of the work of Jesus Christ in paying in the penalty. The wages of sin is death. We will all face physical death. We are not right now in the very presence of God in the sense of heaven. Why? We're separated from him because of our sin. But Jesus Christ left heaven, came to earth, took on flesh, went to the cross, and he bore that penalty of death and satisfied the righteousness of the Father. He took the wrath of Almighty God, the one that probably understood it more, and I don't have the time to turn there right now, than anyone else, was Barabbas. You know why? Because Barabbas deserved to die on a cross and have crucifixion. And he was the worst, which is why Pilate picked him. He said, you want me to release Barabbas? Because he thought they wouldn't do it. Or do you want me to release Christ? Oh, release Barabbas and crucify Christ. Barabbas walked away knowing, you know what? That's what I deserve. I'm free. He's not. And then you got in Luke 23, right? The, Luke, the, the thief on the cross. They mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. There were three people there that were dying. The other two said, we're getting what we deserve, but not this guy. Remember me when you come into your kingdom today. This day you shall be with me in paradise. That man never got down from the cross. He never got baptized. He never went to church. He never helped someone across the street. He never did a good deed or anything. He was a thief and a robber from everything that was revealed to us in Scripture. And how did he get to heaven? because he recognized that an innocent one was on the cross dying, and this was the king, the king of kings. And he put his faith in him. And he received the benefit of that sacrifice. And that's what it says. Tremendous. We've been called to suffer, and we're worried about that. When Christ had suffered for you, and then he says back in verse 21, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What is that? It's interesting. The word example here, literally translated in the Greek, means writing under. It's a compound word. He's an underwriter. Well, what does that mean? Well, most of us think of the market, the stock market. No, 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 don't think that way. This word really meant, and some of you in school will remember this, some of you that old as I am are older, huh? right? And that is we used to take letters and we would trace them. Right now they get doing away with writing, but you trace the letters to learn how to write. Oh, let me illustrate it to you this way because it's the idea. And by the way, in that time, that's what would happen. They would put a letter underneath and then they would have to trace over it. Or it would be like a lot of, probably some of you have done this at one time. You take a picture and then you put over a paper so that you can see the picture, and then you trace right over it, okay? That's the idea of underwriting. That's the idea here. He's given us not just an example to look at. He's given us an example that is a pattern to follow. He's given us something so that we can have the victory. Thus, he did not just tell us, just look at me 
And he didn't just show us what he did. He's given us the pattern to show us how to have victory so that we can truly understand what it says in Romans when it says, am I to continue in sin that let grace abound? God forbid. How shall I who am dead to sin live any longer in it? What am I to do? I was buried with Christ so that I might walk or live righteously for him. See? I go on. I go on in a pattern. However, unlike the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a vast difference that I need to point out to be true to the text. He did it in a way where he suffered for the sins of the world. I can't do that. Nor can you. I will face suffering, but his was substitutionary. His justified the lost. His atoned. My suffering does not. But we can walk in his steps. Isn't that what it says? We had to walk in his steps. We want to do the Father's will. What did the Lord Jesus Christ do? He submitted to the Father's will at all times. We will face what he faces, that is rejection from the world if we live for Christ. We will face desertion by friends. We will face the suffering even unjustly from even believers in this world, but we are called to bear up under it. And how can I do that? Let me very quickly, time's going quick. How can we do it? It's verses 22 forward. How did he do it? How did he gain the victory and how can I have the victory when suffering? Let me read verses 22 and 23 again. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's how he gained the victory, and he is the example. Listen. For us to walk in his steps. And we've all seen pictures of it. or even seen poets write about it. And we've talked about walking in the steps of our parents. And you see footprints in the snow and you step in them and so on. Right? We had to follow the, the pattern of Christ. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean I can atone for sin? Never. But does it mean anything practically to me? Yes. How about this very simple? Four negatives. Summarized by this word, don't take out revenge. Don't seek revenge. As a believer, I'm to leave that to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, say the Lord. So when I'm suffering, number one, and you see if that's not what it's saying, do not sin. Don't sin. In the midst of suffering, our response and tendency is to sin when we have been unjustly treated. I'll open myself up to you. Don't tell me some of you haven't done this before as well. This doesn't excuse what I did, but it's reality. You ever go down the road and somebody cuts you off? And then you get earned and you go after them? And then after you're going after them, you realize, what in the world am I doing? What happened? That's a sinful reaction. I'll get in front of them and cut them off. Very good example. Right? No. When you're suffering, you don't sin. And that's a simple thing, because that's not suffering, by the way. Don't think evil. His heart kept right with God 
even in the midst of suffering. Second one, he didn't use his mouth in a wrong way. That is probably one of the biggest problems of the Christian, foot and mouth disease. Not by the way the world, and that's a real disease, by the way. Not by, and that's painful. It's even more painful when you let your mouth run loose and you can't take back words. And you wish you had never said what you did. And when we're suffering, sometimes that's happening. Well, the Lord didn't do that. The Lord didn't sin when he was being punished unjustly. The Lord didn't use his mouth. He didn't respond to the abuse. And by the way, in that idea of being reviled there and uh, the response, it's really abusive language is the idea. He was reviled, and the, the word is used in a continuous tense here. He was continuously abused by these people with their language. And what did he do? He attacked them. No, he didn't. He didn't at all. That's why he can tell us, even if it's an enemy, pray for them. He didn't threaten them. You'll get yours. Not at all. No threats. Isn't that what it says? How can we have victory? By using our mouth properly, by not threatening, by not sinning. And you say, those are all negatives. Yes, but look at the big positive one, and that is the whole key. What is it? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What am I to do? I am to keep committing myself even when I am treated unjustly. And if you're a believer here, that's what we're called to. Christ is the pattern. I can live, even if you will, context as a slave. Because I am a slave of Christ. If I'm a slave and I'm abused, I can still live for the glory of God in that relationship, and I need to watch my mouth, I need not to sin, and in that circumstance, even if I don't understand it, I need to continually commit myself to Christ. And if we could get that into the practical, everyday living of our life, we wouldn't have as many problems with our neighbors, our bosses, or even our families. He knew that the Father had allowed this. And I have to end with this, and we need to get to communion. Maybe I have to leave this for next time. But verse 24, it is a perfect atonement. It is a substitutionary atonement. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross. We might die to sin. And that is dealing with the present. We are not to live a sinful life. We are to live a holy life that's pleasing in his sight. And I really do need to stop here. But let me say this. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that you know the God of the universe, that you don't even know if religion works, you don't even know if God exists, I'm here to tell you that not only does God exist, and not only has God created this world, but God has provided salvation for your soul. And what does it matter that you gain the whole world and then you lose your soul? You win the lottery, so what? You'll leave it behind. You have the best health in the world, live to be 155, you'll still die. But God cares about your soul, and he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Came into this world, took on flesh, obeyed the Father's will, went to the cross, and paid the penalty and price for sin. By faith, trust in him, and that finished and completed work, and you'll have eternal life. 